turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. At this time, Nehemiah's project of restoring and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem have began. We saw last time in chapter 3 where after Nehemiah shared his vision from the Lord to rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and destroyed by fire, that the people rallied together under Nehemiah's leadership and says they arose and they began the rebuilding process. And chapter 3 recorded how it was this beautiful cooperative effort as the people of God rallied together and each of them taking a measure of responsibility in the work doing their part of the project where God had positioned them, many of them working right in front of their own households and repairing the section that was there and working together to do their share in this wonderful work of God that's taking place under Nehemiah's leadership. And as the work of God is now underway and moving forward, it's got some momentum and things are beginning to happen. As we saw back in chapter 2, that whenever a a good work of God begins, there's always sort of a, a counterwork of the enemy that takes place to try and resist God's plan, that whenever the Lord's team, if you would, the Lord's army starts marching forward, there's always going to be that opposition, uh, the battle against the plan of God that the enemy always brings into play, and that, of course, happens uh, in the days of Nehemiah, as we see here, we'll see it in chapter 4 once again beginning to happen. It happens in our spiritual lives as well, that whenever the work of God starts to happen, even in our own hearts and lives, we can always expect that when God starts to work in our life, that there is going to be sort of a counterworking of the enemy, our spiritual adversary, the devil, who seeks to oppose and to hinder and he works in many different ways. Uh, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians, that we're not to be ignorant of the devil's devices or his schemes. And the devil has lots of different schemes. He has different devices that he tries to use to hinder God's work in our lives personally, to hinder God's work maybe amongst our family or to hinder the work of God in some form of ministry to advance the kingdom of God or maybe to use us to work through our life in some way or just to come against the church collectively as Jesus tries to use his church to build the kingdom of God. And uh, it's important that we recognize that this opposition does come and there are many different ways the enemy brings his opposition and chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Nehemiah in some ways give to us a, a very fitting illustration of how spiritual opposition happens as they face difficulty in different ways, both external opposition and we'll see internal problems and discord and things that are happening and, and temptations to compromise. We'll see numerous different things, but chapter 4 gives to us a number of different ways where opposition comes, and we see the great example of Nehemiah's leadership where he understands the importance of persevering even in the midst of sort of the pushback of the enemy that comes in at times when God's starting to make advancements in the midst of his people. So great lessons for us to learn spiritually as we look at these things together. So the work has begun, they're rebuilding now, and we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, but so it happened 
When Sanballat, remember he was the enemy we identified back in chapter 2, who had told us that when Nehemiah even came to Jerusalem, that Sanballat and uh, Tobiah, says, were disturbed that Nehemiah had come because they knew he was a man who had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And so he despised them and began to question and interrogate them to try and discourage them in the second chapter. But yet they persevered past that. The work of God has begun. But now once again, the enemy arises in another form of opposition. And again, important for us to realize that once we overcome spiritual warfare or some attack of the enemy, uh, our enemy is relentless. And just because we may overcome one time in spiritual warfare doesn't mean that he's going to go away and leave us alone. It's sort of a an ongoing war. Uh, spiritual warfare is called that for a very reason because wars consist of many battles. And there will be many battles that we face in spiritual warfare throughout the entirety of the journey of our Christian life as God works in us, as God seeks to work through us. The Bible even tells us in the New Testament that when Jesus himself and his humanity was brought those temptations from the devil three different times, the devil tried to tempt him to get him to sin. And Jesus overcame all three times, and we're told there that then the devil left him until an opportune time. The idea is that the devil then departed, but then he once again looked for an opportune time to come back and tempt our Lord Jesus once again. But again, that reminder there, that's what the devil does. He's an opportunist. He looks for those opportune times to try and hinder, to try and do what he can to thwart the good things that God's doing in and through our lives to stop God's work from happening in a life or in some form of ministry or whatever it may be, or to see someone coming to Christ or God using your life in some way. And so once again here, we see the recurrence, Sambalit, the enemy, he comes back once again. The reason it says he heard, verse 1, that we were rebuilding the walls. The enemy gets word that the work of God is gaining momentum. That's when he's going to arise and he's going to come and launch again an effort of attack and bring opposition. It says, verse 1, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And important to remember, even as Sanballat here became furious and very angry when he heard that God's people were doing God's work, we need to realize that when we are doing God's will, uh, it is going to cause anger to be aroused in our spiritual enemy. The devil is going to be angered when he sees that we are doing what God wants and pursuing God's paths or plans, and that's going to arouse his anger and cause him to come and bring resistance directly against our lives oftentimes. If we're honestly not experiencing any resistance from the enemy or no opposition, sometimes we have to wonder if things are going easy and we're never facing any warfare or resistance from the devil in some way if uh, maybe perhaps we're not uh, too engaged in pursuing God's plans and purposes. Uh, here when we see them beginning to rebuild and do God's work, that's what arouses the enemy and he comes and brings his attack now. So Sambalit, he's furious and notice his first effort, it says he began to mock the Jews. That is, he began to just ridicule, to bring criticism to begin to say things that would discourage them with his words. Notice verse 2, it says, He spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria, saying, 
in questioning tones, sort of ridiculing, what are these feeble Jews doing? So he questions their strength. He questions their ability or capability to do what they're doing. What do you think that they're doing, that they actually have the capability to accomplish something, that they really think they're strong enough to do something that's going to succeed or experience uh, something of value? Will they fortify themselves, he says? Will they offer sacrifices? It seems the idea there is, are they going to kind of pray this into existence? They think just by their worship and dependence upon God as they sacrifice unto the Lord. I think they're going to pray and somehow through their prayers, this wall will go up and this restoration will happen. They think somehow their prayers are going to have some effect. Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? the stones that are burned. So again, you notice just the, the, the taunting with questions, trying to bring criticisms, trying to use those questions to bring ridicule and to cause doubt and discouragement in the hearts of God's people by saying the things that they are. And again, this is a very common tactic of our enemy as well. Uh, he understands that you know the ways in which sometimes people would never be hindered by circumstantial difficulties. It's amazing how sometimes the same people who can press through the hardest of circumstances can be dissuaded or even sometimes completely disrupted from going forward by just things like ridicule and criticism, and just doubts and questions that the enemy can bring as he brings his warfare against the minds of people. And this is a common tool of the enemy. The Bible tells us that he is the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, Jesus tells us, regarding the devil. And even when we see the devil from the very onset of his appearance in the Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, the first time we see the devil arise in the Bible— the first words we hear spoken by the devil, they are actually questions. Questions meant to challenge God's word, to challenge God's nature, to cause the disruption between God and his people. Uh, did God really say? And again, the idea there is picturing exactly how the enemy works. His voice is a voice that brings criticism. It causes doubts and questions to arise, and he can use the mouths of people around us at times to say things, to ask us questions. Do you, do you really think that's going to work? Do you really think if you just pray that somehow your prayers are really going to cause something to come to pass? Do you really believe that by asking God, he's going to actually answer and do what you're asking him to do? Do you really think that you have the ability to accomplish what you're trying to do, and, and whether it's just the mental struggles we have going on in our head as the enemy whispers lies in our ears, or even just the words of some Sanballat or Tobiah or someone God sends into our path that asks a question. Maybe they hear we're doing something for God, and they sort of question, do you really think that's going to work? Do you honestly think somehow that's going to succeed or, or is actually going to come to pass? And, and just something which causes us to be doubtful and to question ourselves and question God's will and purposes. And understand, this is a common tactic of the enemy to seek to bring doubt 
into the hearts and minds of God's people, because if he can discourage them in this way, uh, he can sometimes be very successful to just hinder God's people because they will begin to question God and question themselves or even question God's plans or purposes, and we start to wonder, maybe this really isn't God's will. Maybe I heard wrong, and, and we can go through that doubting process. And this is a common tactic of the enemy. We have to be aware of it. We have to recognize it when it's happening. This is where it's important to know the truth and to, to continue to rely upon the truth and rely upon God's word. So the questioning starts to happen by Sanballat because he's angry. And again, as he questions, it says, verse 3, that Tobiah the Ammonite was also beside him. And he, noticed did the same. It kind of became contagious. They, Tobiah says, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So the idea there is that what they were doing was of no value. It had no substance. It was never going to last. Tobias says, are, are you kidding me? Even if they try and build this wall that they're trying to build, even if something as light as a fox that's a few pounds crawls up on that thing, it's going to come toppling down. The idea is it's never going to last. Yeah, you may get something going, but do you really think that's going to last? Do you really think this work is actually going to make it long term? Do you really believe that just the tiniest thing isn't going to just put an end to it? And again, this is just that that doubt creeping in again, that lying voice of the devil trying to question us. Now, understand, the reason that Sanballat and Tobiah are doing this is because they actually are intimidated and concerned that it is going to last and that they are going to accomplish the rebuilding of the wall and that they actually are going to be successful and that they're actually going to be able to revive the stones from the heaps of piles of rubbish because the reality is if a Sanballat and Tobiah had no concern that the people of God were going to succeed, in doing God's work and that God's purposes weren't going to come to pass through their lives, why would they bother attacking them with criticisms? Why would they bother questioning them and trying to cause doubt through their criticisms and their comments and the voice that was trying to discourage the people? The reality is, is they're insecure that it is going to work. They're concerned it's going to come to pass, and that's why they're saying these things to try and use it as a way to trip up God's people to try and discourage them to give up before the momentum keeps moving forward and they succeed in God's plans and purposes. Again, this is a good reminder that when these things are happening in our lives, oftentimes it's because the enemy is actually a little intimidated and insecure. He's angry that God's purposes are starting to work, that prayers are beginning to be answered, that God's work is starting to happen, and because he's aware it is going to make forward progress. This is why his lying voice starts to pick up pace with the questioning and the criticisms and the doubts to try and discourage us in our minds or to cause us to become doubtful in our hearts and lack faith and give up rather than trusting and continuing to go forward in some pursuit of God or letting God continue to work in our life or through our life. So uh, be encouraged. Sometimes when this is going on, it's an indication that something wonderful is going to happen. And the enemy is just trying to pick it apart on the early stages so that it doesn't actually move forward. 
uh, in our lives. So as the questioning happens and the interrogating comments, no doubt, again, these probably says were things that were spoken publicly. It says in verse 2 that these things were being spoken before the brethren and the army. So these were public insults. This was criticism and ridicule that no doubt was hurtful and offensive to Nehemiah as a leader and to the people working together. And these kind of comments and criticisms, they hurt. And look, people can say things at times that are going to hurt us, but it doesn't mean it has to harm us. And look what Nehemiah does here as he's being attacked verbally. It says, verse 4, that rather than him attacking back verbally or answering back, it says, verse 4, hear, O our God. So what's Nehemiah doing? He's praying. His first line of response to the spiritual opposition of the enemy is he begins to engage God in prayer. He just starts to seek God about the situation and look at his prayer, how honest he just pours out his heart. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. They're despising us. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as a plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity, verse 5, and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Now, it's a pretty severe prayer that Nehemiah prays there. A couple things let me make mention. First of all, you can tell that Nehemiah fully believes that this is God's work and not his own. He is so convinced that this is something that God once done and that something that God is doing and all he is is an instrument being used in the process that all they are uh, are the ones who are somewhat participating in what God's doing, that this is God's work and God is bringing this to pass and that God wants to do this, that he actually takes the insults of the enemy and interprets them as they're not insulting us as your people, God. They're insulting you, he says. They are provoking you to anger. God, they're questioning your power to do these things. They're questioning that it's your plan to accomplish the rebuilding of this wall. They are actually challenging you, God, on something that is a part of your purpose and plans. And he realizes they're not insulting us, God. They're insulting you. They're seeking to hinder what you're trying to do. And important that we recognize that sometimes, that when the enemy's opposition comes, particularly if it's in just critical comments or ridicule, mockery, the insults and questions and things that the enemy's doing, that we recognize that, that the enemy's words, even his persecutions that come at times as we're mocked as Christians and people trying to defame Christianity and mock the church, that we realize that, that these are things that are actually being done against the Lord. We're just his representatives. We're just his builders and workers, but they're actually attacking the one who is the foreman behind the project, the one who is the chief builder, and, and we're just his laborers in the process, and we realize that they're actually saying those things against the Lord rather than directly against us specifically, because that helps that we don't take it as personal as we often can sometimes when we feel offended or maybe hurt by things that are said. And, and Nehemiah here, as a great leader, again, he doesn't engage verbally. He doesn't get into a dialogue or debate with these people who are saying this. He just takes his feelings about the matter. He takes the situation 
and he just goes and he just pours out his heart to God in prayer first and foremost. And this is a great example of what we often need to do. When these kind of things happen, we need to go and just pour out our heart before God in prayer. Now, again, as I said, he says some pretty strong things there. He says, God, they're despising us. Give them as plunder, he says, to a land of captivity. Don't cover their iniquity. Don't let their sin be blotted out because they're opposing you, God. Now, he says some pretty strong things in his language, but what I sort of see there is Nehemiah just praying very honestly. He's just pouring his heart out. He's offended. He's somewhat angry and upset. He's feeling this emotionally. And we have emotions, and, and our emotions get stirred sometimes when there's things that are done. And Nehemiah here just prays very honestly. Uh, do I recommend the way he's praying or, or think that this is what God wants to do? Is it God's will not to forgive people's sins or uh, those kind of—of course not. We, but we understand Nehemiah, is, he's just—he's upset. He's frustrated. And it's often safer to just pour out your heart honestly before God than sometimes just maybe pour out venomous comments and hurtful things back towards people when they say hurtful things towards us. Often better to speak such things to God and talk it through with God. You know, God can handle it. And God knows our emotions sometimes are provoked. And, and sometimes just honest prayer like this where you just pour out your heart and you just say what you want to say to just blow the steam off, it's almost much safer to just do this with God in privacy before we start responding to people saying things that can be a lot more damaging. You read in the book of Psalms, and we see many times similar things, David and others, you know, break the teeth of my enemy, God. He's just pouring out his frustration. But a lot of times that honest prayer in maybe anger or when we're hurt or offended, that honest prayer a lot of times helps us process our emotions, and just get our emotions back in check a little bit, and God just lets us blow off our steam, and he listens, and he lets us just pour out our hearts, but it helps us sort of process our emotions so we don't let our emotions make us do things that are just going to be destructive or get us into more trouble. And here, I just like the way Nehemiah handles this great reminder, just pray first. That should always be our first line of defense when things happen, is go to God, pour out your heart to him, tell him what's going on, let your emotions be released and work through things with your thoughts and feelings. So he says, verse 4, that he prayed, and then verse 6, right after he prays, he then says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So notice what they do. They pray about the opposition, and then they just keep going. They don't overanalyze it. They don't overthink it. They pray. They commit the problem to God. We're being attacked, God. People are saying things that are hurtful. But Lord, we have something you have called us to do. And he says, we prayed and then we got back to work. And sometimes that is what we need to do. We need to pray and then we need to press on. We need to talk to God about what's going on but yet we need to be careful that we don't get diverted from what God has told us to do. We need to get back on track. We need to keep serving the Lord. We need to keep doing the thing that he has told us to do. So again, if there's some wonderful work of God going on in our life, and maybe we're you know, really trying to grow in the Lord, and we decide, hey, you know, the kind of the walls of my spiritual life have been broken down, and 
things have been hindered, and, and, and I need to rebuild my spiritual life. I need to get built up spiritually, get back into the Word of God, back into prayer. I need to re-engage and be connected to the church again and start worshiping the Lord and growing spiritually. And, and we start, and then the opposition comes and the attack of the enemy. Oh, how long are you going to read your Bible for? Oh, sure, you're going to get more spiritual now. Do you really think that you're going to actually be able to grow and make progress as a Christian? Or you know, how long will it be to you get disconnected from the church again? And all these little questions and criticisms. Look, we, when that happens, we realize it's spiritual warfare. The enemy doesn't want God's work to come in our life and us to grow and be built up spiritually. So he resists us. And we need to recognize it, we need to pray about it, and then press on. You pray about it, then you get back to reading your Bible and back to praying and back to doing that thing that God wants you to do so that you can continue to be built up spiritually. Same thing if we're serving God in some way. Maybe the challenges come, we pray about it, and then we press on. We get back to work. It says we built the wall, the entire wall, Nehemiah says. We just got back to building, back to working. Stay on task with what God has told you to do. Don't get distracted. We built the wall, and he says the entire wall was joined up to half its height. That's pretty impressive. The idea is the project's halfway done. They just kept at it. They stood busy. Sometimes staying busy and occupied is a great way not to get overly discouraged and distracted. So they just kept building, kept at it. And notice he says, verse 6, the reason is the people had a mind to work. That is, the people had made a decision, we are going to do this. We're determined. We have a mind to work to accomplish this. And boy, something really wonderful is happening when people just have a mindset, we are going to do this. We're going to do God's work. We're going to let God accomplish what he wants through our lives and that we'd have that determined mindset. And that's seen there, Nehemiah, he was a determined man. The people who were serving were determined around him and they did not let themselves be deterred or distracted, or discouraged. They just had a mind to keep on working. God, give us a mind to work, to work at the things of spiritual growth and progress in the ministry and the work of the Lord that we would keep at it. Verse 7 says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, so notice now the, the enemies are growing, now we add in another group of enemies, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. So their first efforts to discourage and hinder them did not succeed. They kept at it. They got back to work, trusting and depending upon God. It says now more enemies begin to arise. So the intensity of the opposition is going to come at them in a greater degree it says they heard they were beginning to close up the gaps and they become very angry now. And the picture there in verse 7, if you actually look at those who are described there, uh, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and what would also be the Ammonites, the picture there is all four directions, north and south and east and west. They're surrounded by enemies on every side. And those enemies are angry. And so verse 8, it says, all of these enemies then conspired together to come and notice, attack Jerusalem and create confusion. So the enemies rally together and, and mutual enemies say, look, we need to attack them. We need to go on a frontal assault. Our verbal attacks didn't work. 
It seems that our comments weren't able to discourage them enough to get them to give up and quit. So therefore, we need to literally come at them with some form of hurtful attack. We need to do something actually to stop them practically. They try and attack Jerusalem. And notice what they want to do, verse 8, is create confusion. Because if they create confusion, the idea is the people will be just sort of reeling around and they won't be able to think clearly. They won't be able to make efforts that are constructive because they will be confused about what they're supposed to do. And a confused person is an unproductive person. A confused person becomes an indecisive person. A confused group doesn't know what direction to go or what we're supposed to do next. And when you create chaos and confusion, you can really thwart forward progress in a person's life. You can hinder the ability for a group of people to accomplish something because everybody doesn't have a clear sense of direction. Uh, They're questioning things. They're uncertain. And this is a common spiritual attack, another one of the devices that the devil uses. He tries in his attacks to create confusion. And we need to recognize this, that when the enemy is at work, sometimes one of his ways of attack is that he will work in a way to try and just just create confusion in a matter, to create confusion in our minds personally, where we find ourselves just kind of being double-minded and, and unstable mentally and finding ourselves kind of wavering and vacillating. We're unable to make decisions. We keep going back and forth and we're, rather than being convinced We're in a state of utter confusion. And and this is often an effort of the enemy because he realizes the power of, of confusion. The same thing, again, among God's people is that the devil tries to come in when God's work is starting to happen, when a work of the Lord is happening through a group of people. This is one of the tactics of the enemy. He attacks by trying to bring confusion in the midst of the people of God, to bring confusion in the midst of a church. These are great efforts of the enemy that we need to be able to identify and stand against because God is not the author of confusion, and so we know the source of it when it comes. It's coming from the devil, our enemy. Verse 9, nevertheless, though this was going on, Nehemiah says, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. So notice what Nehemiah does again. He resorts back once again to prayer. As the attacks came, Nehemiah kept going to the right place for protection, for help. He knew that God was their defense. So once again, Nehemiah, as we've identified, was a man characterized by prayer. He did not try and fight and resist things in the flesh. He did not strive against things in his own efforts and try and solve his own problems. He went to the problem solver. He went to God. And again, we see Nehemiah says, nevertheless, though they attacked us to bring confusion, he says, we made our prayer to God. This is how we stood against them. We sought God's help. We rallied together and started praying and saying, God, come to our help, assist us, defend us, protect us. So we made our prayer to God. And because of them, he says, verse nine, we set a watch against them day and night. So he now has to start making adjustments. He realizes these attacks are going to continue to come. They're not going to cease. They're going to continue to attack us. They're going to keep making efforts to try and hinder us while we're doing what God wants done. They're going to keep trying to oppose God's work 
and stop God's will from coming to pass. It's going to be consistent struggle, consistent battle. So we need to we need to adjust accordingly. We need to continually pray, and we also need to do something practical, which was to set a watch. He then set a watch guard, it seems, we'll see, day and night, round the clock. And I like what you see here of Nehemiah. What a beautiful example. Again, he did what was both, both spiritual as well as that which was very practical. He prayed, he depended upon God, and then he did what was practical. He actually did things that were practical, that were wise and helpful by setting a watch to protect them, to keep them safe. And this is a great example of the balance of what we should often implement in our own lives. Certainly, should we depend upon God's power to help? Absolutely. Dependence upon God and his power to help us in situations is first and foremost. That's fundamental. But that never negates us doing practical things that are wise and helpful to assist in whatever the given situation is or the area where we're vulnerable to attack in some way that could hinder or stop what God wants to do in our lives. You have to wonder if maybe even as Nehemiah and the people prayed, as Nehemiah talked about, okay, now what we need to do is put together a a, a guard to watch over us day and night while we're continuing to do God's work so the enemy doesn't come in and attack us and that we can keep boundaries to keep ourselves safe. If maybe some people were like, Nehemiah, we prayed. What do we need to do that for? God will protect us. Why do we need to do practical things to help? Why do we need to do things that are actually practical in nature if we've already prayed? We prayed. God will take care of us. And I can imagine Nehemiah saying, yes, we prayed and we're depending upon God But God also would have us to use wisdom and common sense and stewardship and do the things that we can do to help fortify and protect ourselves. And I think this is a good reminder uh, that we never get hyper-spiritual. And there is a great amount of importance in doing that which is practical and wise to be a good steward and that which would help us just as much as there is importance in praying and depending upon God and his power to help us in the spirit. And and keep that in mind. Against the enemy's attacks, do those practical things too beyond praying. Set up boundaries and protect yourself. Maybe if there's some area of weakness in your flesh or some area where the enemy tries to attack you with temptation, maybe some struggle of sin that you've wrestled with, or maybe some area maybe that you've been delivered from in the past, but the enemy is going to kind of come in and try and attack you. Well, look, yes, pray. Yes, depend upon the power of God to help you in that area of temptation, but be practical. Uh, Set up a watch. Do things to make sure that there are practical ways to keep yourself safe from the attacks of the enemy. Do things, implement practical measures to protect yourself from sin or the enemy succeeding against you when he brings his attack. Both are very, very important, and don't ever overlook that. Verse 10, it tells us, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. You can tell by verse 10 here, another problem that's starting to arise is now the, the, the stamina, if you would, of God's people is beginning to wane a little bit. It seems that morale is dropping among God's people. They're, they're tired. They become wearied. Again, this is hard work. They're rebuilding a wall. They're picking up 
walls that are broken down and stones and rubbish and moving large rocks and, and things like this out of the way. They're taking gates that have been burned with fire and they're trying to remove the old ones and repair and restore things. This was hard physical manual labor and it was exhausting work. So they're physically tired. They're, they're worn out. They find themselves in their weariness starting to kind of get a little discouraged. Their strength is starting to lack. They're, they're doing a lot of work here. And when we're putting in a lot of work, we can start to get physically wearied and, and we find that our strength starts to fail and diminish. And sometimes when we get physically wearied, that can often be a, a real susceptibility in our life to discouragement. Sometimes when we are just overworked and doing a lot of hard work and putting a lot of effort in and, and we find ourselves just kind of depleted and exhausted, physically, mentally drained, that a lot of times can be a tie together to some of the times when we become the most vulnerable to great discouragement, even depression, wanting to just give up and give in. And like the people here, the strength of the people laboring was failing and they were starting to become very discouraged. They say, there's so much rubbish. We're just not able to do this. We just, we can't do it. They're halfway done. But yet now they're saying, we just can't do this anymore. We're not going to be able to finish. We're not able to build the wall. And the morale is dropping among the people. And sometimes this happens. A lot of times when we get wearied in God's work, we can find ourselves becoming sort of doubtful. And those are the times when we can be most prone to the greatest bouts of personal discouragement or when God's people sometimes just want to give up rather than carrying on and pressing forward. Sometimes this is an area where the enemy waits for us to get vulnerable. He'll let us just get weary and weary and weary, and this is when he'll come and, and just attack when we're at our most discouraged point. And sometimes it's just weariness, mental and physical exhaustion to some degree, and we need to stay aware of that reality. Again, the Bible tells us, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Just because we get tired doesn't mean we have to quit. Just because we're wearied and it feels like that we can't go on any further doesn't mean that's a time to stop doing things or to just give up because it seems like we can't complete. we got to look to the Lord, ask Him to strengthen us. Maybe we need to just take a little rest or a respite. Sometimes it's just as spiritual to rest as it is to keep pressing forward. Maybe we need a little physical or mental refreshment to regain our strength and to renew our perspective so that we don't lose heart and discouragement and give up in the midst of our tiredness. So the people now, the morale's dropping. And then verse 11, also the adversaries, when they see morale's dropping, it says, they will neither know nor see anything until they come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. That's what the enemy wanted to do. He wanted to cause the work to cease. And that's what the enemy of our soul wants to do. He wants to cause God's work to cease. When God's working, the enemy wants to try and do whatever he can to cause that work of God to cease. Verse 12, And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us, notice, ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. So as they're wearied and tired and morale is dropped now, uh, they're in a very vulnerable place because morale is low. They're tired. They're discouraged and wearied as a people doing what God's asked them to do. They press through multiple battles already trying to stop them, but they're trying to carry forward. And now, of course, the enemy, seeing the weakness 
of this moment comes in. Again, he's an opportunist. He knows just the right times when we're tired. He knows sometimes those are the greatest times to come in with his attacks. And he once again, trying to cause the work to cease, he begins to stir up just negative thoughts. And notice interesting, verse 12, it says that when the Jews who dwelt near those enemies saying those things, wanting to work to cease, they came and kept telling Nehemiah and maybe his leadership or his team around him, it says 10 different times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. In other words, there, there's no hope. And they kept saying the same negative message again and again. Nehemiah says 10 times, just repeatedly, the negativity, the negativity. And again, this is something that we need to be very careful of. People who are very negative in their comments, people who are complainers, people who can just always find something negative in everything. And they kind of have a tendency to speak negative things, and they're discouragers more than they are encouragers. They're those who kind of deflate the sails, and every time something is happening, they always have some negative way to look at it. They have some critical comment about it or oh, oh, some way to always identify that's just something that's wrong about everything. And, and, and negativity can – boy, it can, it can be like a, a cancerous plague that can come in and really destroy what God's trying to do. And whoever these people were, this particular group of Jews, they just kept bringing negative comments about everything that they were doing. But again, verse 13, Nehemiah shows his great leadership. He says, therefore, in light of this, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall. So he now starts to set up an armed guard, we're going to see, at the openings. And I set the people according to their families. So he put families together. He knew they were committed to one another, that they would rally together and support with their swords and their spears And their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So Nehemiah here wisely continues to provide leadership in the midst of these things to encourage God's people to persevere, to keep marching forward in what God wants despite the difficult circumstances they're facing. He says, I set up a guard. I I caused the families to come together. I I said to them, look, get yourselves armed, be equipped, be prepared. He he gives to them actual weapons, the swords and the spears and the bows. They're literally going to have an armed guard now. And then he gives them encouragement. And I think this is something that's very valuable in the midst of God's work is that there would be people that are the opposite of the negative people, those who are always bringing discouragement, those who know how to inspire people, especially in hard times, those now to speak words of encouragement to build up and to inspire people to keep going. And don't let opposition hinder what God's trying to do. And, and you stay at it and, and, and speaking words to sort of exhort people to stir up inspiration, especially when morale is low. And good leaders know how to do this. When they can tell someone's down or morale is low, they know how to speak in a way to stir up people, to, to inspire them to carry on, to keep going, to believe in what God can do and to keep persevering and pressing forward rather than quitting. And he says, I looked and arose and I said to the nobles and to the leaders, he spoke to the people Nehemiah did, and he said to them, do not be afraid. He says, look, I know what you're facing looks scary, but you don't have to be afraid. Yes, it's intimidating. Yes, the circumstances may seem threatening, but he says, 
don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear. Don't allow fear to cripple you. And, you know, fear can be one of the most crippling effects. And it's another tactic of the enemy to just use fear to paralyze people, to cause people to be so afraid of what could happen, afraid of the unknown, afraid of what it appears could possibly take place. And fear can paralyze us from continuing to be open to what God wants for our lives. A lot of times the enemy is able to stop people by just causing people to be afraid of trusting God or stepping forward or maybe doing something that God's calling them to do. And it's it's fear that the enemy uses that thwarts their faith and hinders them maybe from obeying the Lord. It's, it's fear that keeps us sometimes from sharing the gospel with somebody. It's fear that keeps us from serving the Lord in some way. It's fear that keeps us from maybe stepping forward and trying to make progress in our spiritual life or to engage in some form of ministry. And and the word of the Lord says, do not be afraid. And he says, you remember the Lord great and awesome. Why, Why don't we have to be afraid? Because we serve a great and awesome Lord. A Lord who is great in his power and who is awesome in his ability to stand with us, to protect us, to support us, and to provide for us, to do what's necessary to continue his purposes in and through our lives. He says, look, when you find yourself fearful, the answer to fear, he says, is get your focus off of the circumstances and get your eyes on the Lord. You remember the Lord. Think about the great and awesome Lord that you serve, and that inspires faith in our hearts. It gives us a renewed sense of confidence when we're doubtful or worried. And then he says, again, practically, you focus on the Lord, but then practically says, and you fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, wives, and your houses. He says, look, there are certain things that are worth fighting for. And he says, things that are God's purposes, they're worth fighting for. A lot of times we as God's people uh, can almost become a, a little bit passive And sometimes the Lord says to us, look, there are certain things worth fighting for. He says, fight for your spouses. Fight for your marriages. If your marriage is being threatened by what's going on, he says, fight for your spouse. Fight for your kids. If your kids are being threatened by the attacks of the enemy, he says, fight for your children. Do this for your fellow brothers and sisters. You stay in the fight. You keep the battle going. You hold the line. You make sure you don't let the enemy succeed. You continue to fight that good fight. Paul tells Timothy that in the New Testament. Fight the good fight of faith. The Bible tells us that we're to endure hardship like good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we need to be willing to fight for what's God's heart. To fight for the things of God. To keep pressing forward in battle and not shrink back, but to fight for those things that matter. There are certain things that are worth fighting for, continuing to just press forward no matter what it takes. And sometimes God needs to encourage our hearts that passivity is not the answer. Sometimes we need to step in with a sense of determination, almost a sense of aggressive confidence. This is God's will, and I'm going to fight for God's will in this situation. I'm going to fight for what is right because I know that this is something God wants me to take a stand for. And sometimes we need that encouragement. And if that's you, you fight for what matters. You fight for what matters to God, and you fight for certainly what is valuable, your family, the people of God, the things that matter to God's purposes and plans. Verse 15, and it happened, he says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us 
that God had brought their plot to nothing. I have that underlined. I love that. God brought the plot of the enemy to nothing, and that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. The enemy heard that God had brought their plot to nothing. The Bible says, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Will the enemy launch attacks against our lives? Will there be hindering forces that work against God's people and what God wants to do in situations? Absolutely. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the ideas, the plots of hell, he said, won't prevail. They'll come, but they don't have to prevail. They don't have to succeed. And so often God is able to bring the plot of our enemy to nothing. Boy, it may look threatening. It may look like it is disastrous, but God is a way to step in when his people fight for what is right and what matters to him. When they stand with God in the battle and they're willing to do what it takes and trust and depend upon the Lord, God can intervene and come and bring the plot of the enemy to nothing and stop it from having its effect destructively in our lives. They get back to work. Everyone do his work. And so it was from that time on, verse 16, that half of my servants, Nehemiah says, worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and war armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. So Nehemiah, just again, wise leadership here. He says, look, we're going to have to adjust here. It may take us a little longer to get done what we want to get done on the wall, but we're going to have to adjust. These are unique circumstances. So Nehemiah shows great leadership because he says, let's adjust. Let's do what we have to do given the circumstances. Half of the people are now going to have to be an armed guard to protect and to keep us safe. And they're going to have to have shields and spears and they're going to have to be our defense force. And then the other half can continue the construction work and building and giving themselves and their time and energy to that work. And again, great wisdom of Nehemiah there. He shows, as James 3 talks about, wisdom from above is willing to yield. And he shows great wisdom. These were unique times. So he says, okay, we're going to have to adjust and do what we need to do in order to keep the process moving forward, to keep God's work happening. And so he now breaks apart two groups, a construction crew and a defense force with weapons to protect the people. Sometimes it's wise to adjust when circumstances require that. Verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon that is a sword or something of that nature. Every one of his builders had his sword, notice verse 18, girded at his side as he built. So the people realized we are going to have to both build and battle. We're going to have to build and battle, and we need to be willing to do the building process and keep building God's wall and letting God's work come to pass, but we also need to be ready to fight in battles as is necessary along the way, and there's going to be a combination of both. We're going to be building, and we're also going to be battling. We're going to be working, but we're also going to be fighting a war, and there's going to be warfare. So they have with one hand the the, the, the plow, if you would, working construction, and with the other hand they have a sword. Every man had a sword girded at his side, ready to defend and to fight when the battle raged. And again, the Bible often pictures a, a sword symbolically as a picture of the Word of God, like the sword of the Spirit, Hebrews 4 speaks about the Word of God. And, and we need to kind of work in God's 
you know, processes. When, when we're engaged in God's work, we need to work in a similar way with our sword close by. We need to have the Word of God ready, and we need to know how to use the Word of God to fight off the enemy, to defend ourselves against spiritual warfare, and have God's Word always accessible, always ready. So important that we are armed with the Word of God because the truth of God's Word is one of the greatest weapons that we have to succeed against the enemy, and most importantly, not to be defeated by the enemy. Because the enemy is the one who will come on the offensive against us. Our job is to stand. Our job is to be faithful, to keep going forward in the things of God, to not let God's work be stopped or hindered in our life personally, to not let God's work be hindered as God's working through us in some form of service or ministry, to not let God's work be hindered among his people, his church collectively. But that means we need to realize we're building And we need to keep building and keep moving forward, but we also need to be ready to battle. And we need to understand that and have the Word of God and prayer. These are our greatest weapons to resist the attacks of the enemy and not let him succeed. So every one of the builders had his sword now girded at his side. And verse 18 says, And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So Nehemiah had a trumpeter with him everywhere he went, sort of supervising the work of God, helping leadership to be provided to the different areas where they're building as they're separated from one another on this expansive wall. In verse 19, he says, Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us here. And again, look at his encouragement. He realized where their safety was. Our God will fight for us. So Nehemiah has this trumpeter that stays with him, and any time, at any given moment, if the attack would come, because they were doing this great work, and notice, he says, verse 19, we are all separated far from one another on the wall. The, the people were, were in, a, in a, a phase of separation. Uh, they were all working in front of their own houses, but this was a wall that went around the entirety of the city of Jerusalem, so there was a lot of separation between them. They weren't physically close to one another, but Nehemiah says, when the battle rages, I'm going to have the trumpeter with me, and if he blasts the trumpet, that is the rallying trumpet, where when we hear the sound of the trumpet, we all rally together to stand together as one to defend ourselves against the attack of the enemy, to support wherever that attack is coming, if it's coming up against this family in that area of the wall or this area over here, we all rally together and stand in support of one another. And he says, and our God will be with us in the battle and our God will fight for us and be strong on our behalf. I love this wisdom in Nehemiah's leadership. He knew how to rally people together when it was necessary that they would support one another, they'd stand in defense of one another and rally together as God's people, realizing that unison and that unity would be their great defense as God would work through their unity to support and stand with one another. I think it's a great reminder that trumpeter, sometimes you know, it's necessary for us when things happen, maybe the enemy comes in a particular way against one family or a, in a particular you know, area he comes and attacks. And, and these are times where sometimes as God's people, we need to rally together. And there needs to be that rallying cry, hey, we all need to rally together and go over here and stand in support of this family or help this individual or go to that situation and, and come together in unity 
standing in support with one another. And that's a great way to defend against the attacks of the enemy so that he doesn't succeed against any one of us. Because if he succeeds against any one of us or any family, any breach in the wall is a problem for everyone. It becomes a, a situation where it brings harm to everyone collectively. And I picture that rallying there, like coming together in prayer, or rallying together in support to provide physical assistance, whatever it may be. They would rally together and God would come and fight for them. Again, the people worked, 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 but they always kept an ear open for that rally cry, for the blast of the trumpet. And, you know, as God's people, we are called to keep doing the Lord's work, to keep building the kingdom of God, and we are to be listening for the trumpet as well. First Thessalonians chapter 4, that trumpet blast where we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So we're to be busy with God's work and we're to be listening, waiting for the trumpet when we rally together to ultimately be taken off of this earth and are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. What a great reminder of that. Well, the chapter concludes by saying, So we labored in the work. Half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. So these were long days from daybreak until the stars appeared. Typically, they would only work until sundown. But this time, because of the situation, it required a lot of extra time commitment. There was a lot of extra work to be done. And because of the difficult circumstances, the people had to put in long days. There was greater amounts of work to be done because of the hard times they were going through. So from daybreak until the stars appeared, the men would stand watch and protection over their families. They would do what was necessary to care for their households and protect God's work collectively. And at the same time, he says, verse 22, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem. So though they were from rural areas and would come and work on the wall, many people, he at this time says, look again, we need to adjust. And so those of you who used to go home and, and live out in the rural areas, he's saying these times require some extra sacrifice. And so we're asking you now to make the sacrifice to stay here locally in the city of Jerusalem because we need you in these times. We need you to give a little extra in your efforts and your energies to help God's work to continue to flourish and not be defeated. So each man and a servant would stay in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by day and night, working party by day. Verse 23, so neither I and my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except, Nehemiah says, and this is practical, except for washing. Periodically, they needed to bathe and to get themselves cleaned up. Now, the picture there is not taking off their clothes except for washing. Is The idea is, is they kept their clothes on constantly because they always wanted to be ready to act. They were working a lot. They were putting a lot of effort. So they were continually engaged. They weren't lazy. They were giving their absolute best efforts to the rebuilding of that wall because they wanted it to succeed because it was God's purpose. But they also were constantly ready. That's why they never took off their outer garments and were in a resting or leisurely posture. They were always ready to act. And you know what? As God's people, this is a great reminder for us. We need to be engaged in God's purposes. And we need to be always ready to act. We should live in a state of readiness. May we as God's people always be ready to act. 
whether it's to go and pray with someone, to step in and help out in some way, to do some work, to engage in some, that we're always ready to act, ready to respond. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me conclude with reminding you of this truth. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Will challenges come? Will opposition happen? Absolutely. But we got to persevere. we got to be immovable. We need to continue to be steadfast and keep abounding in the Lord's work. It is the greatest thing we can give ourselves to. It's the only thing that matters. It's the only lasting and eternal thing that is never vain to give ourselves to. And we need to stay at it rally together, support one another, be wise against the enemy's attacks, and keep pressing on.